0: Well, good morning. My name is Rick Ayton and I am currently in the middle of a two-year term as elder here at Prairie View. And I've served on and off the elder board for the past 27, 28 years. And with that comes the occasion of being asked to speak on Sunday mornings. And over the years, I've probably had this privilege 10, 12 times. Last time was two years ago, Thanksgiving, where I preached a message titled, The Miracles of Prairie View. Now, almost 20 years ago, I had my first opportunity to speak on Sunday morning. It was, the end, it was at the end of my first three-year term as elder, and we had our challenges during those three years, and the message was appropriately titled, Don't Ever Give Up. And I thought the message on that cassette would rest in a drawer forever. However, however over the past year, maybe year and a half, it seems that the trials of life that we are all experiencing are occurring at an ever-increasing frequency and severity. So today, I'm going to revisit that message of 20 years ago, this time with the benefit of 20 years of additional experience and wisdom. This world does have joy and goodness in it, but ever since sin entered the world at the beginning, this fallen world regularly throws trials and adversity at us, sometimes in overwhelming amounts. God's word says a lot about how we should handle adversity, and one of my favorites is the first chapter of James, and it goes like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So that's it. We should just rejoice in our trials and adversity. Pretty simple. End of message. We can go home and eat our leftover turkey. But there's always a but. But simple is not always that easy. Back in 1999, when I told someone I was preparing a message for Sunday church, they asked me about what? And I replied that I was thinking of uh, preaching about overcoming adversity. And that prompted their question somewhat sarcastically well, What do you know about adversity? And 20 years ago, it was a busy time of life, and I didn't really have time to think about it, and I don't remember if I even replied. But this time around, in 2019, I had a little more time to reflect What do I know about adversity? I had a fairly normal childhood, I had two wonderful parents, two great brothers. Did reasonably well in high school. Did better in college. Had some athletic success in high school and college. Graduated from college and had two interviews. And one of those companies hired me and has resulted in a rewarding 42-plus year career. I never had to find a job. Married a wonderful Indiana gal. God bless us with two incredible daughters who got straight A's in high school and college. Both excelled in athletics. They both graduated and got employed. Married great husbands. Linda and I have lived in a beautiful home on a lake with a boat in the backyard for the past 30 33 years, and we've been blessed by a great church for the past 28 years. So as I reflect, that question was a fair question. What do I know about adversity? Well, maybe I don't know much about adversity, but that doesn't mean I haven't seen it and that I can't talk about it. 20 years ago, life was a little more simple. And I thought life was about going through through seasons of success, joy, and goodness. And then very occasionally we would experience moments or of trials and adversity. However, 20 years now has taught me with wisdom and experience that most often we experience the joy and the heartache of trials and adversity many times at the same time. When I was about 20 years old, I was drawn to a poem that I've never forgotten simply titled a winner. It was about the traits and the characteristics of a winner. And what stuck with me was the last sentence of that poem that goes like this. A winner is a man, a woman, a child, a spirit, a sensing, a stone that's been kicked to the side of the road so many times that it becomes polished and is discovered to be a gem. So I've always thought for a long time now that God sends us trials as part of our polishing process to help test our faith and develop our perseverance so that we do so that we do become mature and complete. And not lacking anything. Today, I'm going to share some stories that I hope will encourage you. Story of trials that tested faith and developed perseverance. Perhaps kind of like that stone being kicked to the side of the road so many times that it eventually starts to become polished. But let me pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, Thanks for this message that you've laid on my heart. It's my hope that this message you've given me provides encouragement to those that hear it as they go through the trials of life. Please help us not to focus on the individuals in these stories, but to focus on your son Jesus, whose grace and goodness makes these stories possible. Father, we love you and we thank you for everything. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You know, I love stories. I think stories help convert our black and white world into technicolor. They paint pictures to help us understand what we otherwise might miss. We have a local radio personality, Mark Monteith, who has a program that's called Because Stories Need to be Told. I was listening one night a couple years ago when he was interviewing Coach Doug Mitchell, who coached the North Central High School boys basketball team for many years until he retired in 2017. And Coach Mitchell has a story, and it's fairly well-known around here, and it happened in 2002. Their 16-year-old son, Bryce, was quickly becoming well-known in the area as the next basketball star, but more importantly Bryce was just a great kid who loved the Lord in one summer morning coach Mitchell his son and daughter were on their way to a basketball camp and about three miles from this church building a dump truck ran a stop sign and Bryce was killed during the interview with the uh, Monteith, Monteith, he talked about the testing of his faith and the perseverance that he developed but he was quick to say that he almost lost his way in life due to the overwhelming amount of grief he experienced But through the support of family and friends, he was eventually able to return to coaching young men. And Mark asked him towards the end of that interview, he said, Coach Mitchell, you work at a metro high school that has all kinds of demographics and family structures from two parents to one parent to none. How do you cope with and handle the myriad of excuses, the poor attitudes and the behavior in the young men that you coach? And Coach Mitchell said, said, I simply tell the young men my story, and then I look them in the eye and I say, Everybody's got a story. What are you going to do with yours? Everybody's got a story. What are you going to do with yours? None of us has any control over where our story starts, and we have very little control over the story of our past. However, we have 100% control over what we do with our story going forward. So this morning I'm going to tell four stories about a leader, a dreamer, a husband, and a patient. Each story could probably fill a chapter in a book or maybe even a book itself. But today you'll get the abbreviated versions. And the first story is about me. It's a leadership story. Linda and I arrived here at Prairie View and we became members in 1991. In 1996, I was nominated for a three-year term as elder to begin in 1997. I was kind of surprised and honored, but mostly uncomfortable I had all the excuses, excuses that Moses had when he was chosen to lead his people from slavery in Egypt. I'm not a good enough leader. I don't communicate well enough. I was like, pick someone else. Well, I was handed a long questionnaire, and I thought, surely if I complete this honestly, they'll pick someone else. But apparently they didn't read it, and then there was a long interview. (laughs) And apparently they weren't listening because I ended up being put on the ballot And you elected me to a three-year term beginning in 1996. Now, all kidding aside, the process was very thorough, and I'm pretty sure that no one that has ever served on the elder board at Prairie View ever thought they were good enough. So there I was, a newly elected elder, and I was ready to serve to the best of my ability. The first challenge was leadership at the time thought 5.30 on Friday mornings was a good time to meet, and I am not a morning person. But I showed up, and I was ready to do great things for the Lord. But very quickly, I learned that there were some challenges. Our attendance had been declining, and we were almost out of money. Before I was a part of the leadership team, Prairie View had hired a consultant to provide counsel on how to do things as a church. And unfortunately, his final assessment was that Prairie View was somewhere in a category between declining and dying. And not, not too long into my elder term, our senior minister resigned, and shortly after, and I think it was the same week, the elder chairman resigned. Well, apparently, somewhere in the past, I had volunteered to be assistant elder chairman for a couple years, and so very quickly, I was being asked to assume the role of chairman. So I, I told the guys, hey, give me a week to think about it and pray about it. But I reached a decision pretty quickly to say no for all the right reasons. I didn't have enough leadership experience, I wasn't a good enough Christian, and so on. But truthfully, the real reason was I didn't want to be known forever as the elder in charge when Prairie View died. So I arose on that Friday morning to go to that meeting where I was going to tell them my decision. It was 4.40, and I was pretty much an emotional wreck. And my routine for these early Friday morning meetings was to stop at a village pantry on 10th Street in Noblesville that's not even there anymore for a cup of coffee. But on this particular morning... I had no hunger or thirst, and I just drove right on by. But as I did, I heard the prompting or the voice from God to reach down, and he said, hey, Rick, if I can make a shepherd boy a king, I can help you be the elder chairman. And a hair in the back of my neck kind of stood up, and I got little chills throughout my body, And um, but I felt at peace. And so I went to that meeting, and history will show that I was the elder chairman from 1997 through 1999. And in that process, I tried to learn as fast as I could from other business and church leaders that I admired. And consistently, I heard the key to leadership was love the folks that you lead. And so that's what I did for three years. And by God's grace, we emerged a little stronger and more stable in 1999. And again, by God's grace, here we are 20 years later, still doing ministry at another location right here at Allisonville Road and 141st. So the next three stories are about young men that I knew back in the 1980s. And the first story is a story about the Dreamer. And back in the 1980s and early 1990s, I had a racing life. And hopefully Denise can put some pictures up on the screen. And I've told this story before, is I met Linda in the emergency room after a racing accident. And when I told her how I got hurt, she envisioned that it was a bunch of grown men racing modified lawnmowers in somebody's backyard. And so the pictures are there, so that I didn't have to explain to you what I had to explain to her, that it was pretty serious racing. And my friend, he told me that he wanted to be a race driver since he was nine years old, but his family didn't have the resources for such a costly endeavor. So he had to wait until he could provide the funding himself, all the way till his mid-twenties. He started racing go-karts, and on the first lap on a real race course, he fell in love with the sport. He raced locally and regionally the first two years and did well. He had been an athlete in various sports in high school and college. And as hard as he tried, he was never elite in any sport and never came close to anything big like a state championship. He had some natural talent in racing and he was willing to work hard. He thought he could do well nationally and developed a big dream. This time the dream was big. He dreamed of being the champion of the entire United States of America. And so he set up a process and developed a team, an engine builder and a mechanic, and he set out in 1982 and 1983 to travel around the country and chase the dream. He quickly found the competition extremely challenging, but didn't give up through some big accidents and costly mechanical failures. 1984 was to be the year, but it was also a year that he had some big non-racing challenges. He had a job, he had to support his racing, and that job was now demanding more and more of his time, and he had a wedding plan for the fall of that year. And he was running low on funds to be used for racing. In 1984 did not begin well. Early races and more accidents and mechanical failures. And, and at the end of a weekend in April in Rockingham, North Carolina, there was a for sale sign on his trailer. He had given up on his dream. But then on the way back to Indy, I witnessed the power of the encouragement of others. I saw and heard other racers encourage him to continue, telling him that his early struggles will make him better. And so several weeks later, he had everything repaired and re-engineered, and he headed back to North Carolina, this time the Charlotte Motor Speedway. On the first weekend of May, things were different. Practice was perfect. And in the race, he passed the current national points leader, Leo Capaldi, on the last turn of the last lap. And he won his first national point race. I'll tell you a little bit more about that story in a few minutes. The next story is the story of the husband, and I knew a young man at my office that was married. He seemed happily married. His wife was good-looking and personable and very successful in her own right. However, over time, I learned his marriage was crumbling. Things seemed to get worse over the next couple months, and I remember the day he was distraught at work. Apparently, he had left home the night before, and he didn't know if he could return. And about this time, a friend of his wife's was diagnosed with leukemia. Her name was Artie, and she was in their wedding. She was happily married to Dave and had two young children, and she was a very positive person, and she was just the type of person that could just light up a room. So he was kind of shocked and disturbed when he heard the news of her illness. And he went to visit her in the hospital and asked her when she thought she may have contracted the disease. And she replied, she says, you know, I don't know that you catch leukemia, but back in the fall, I had a terrible bout of depression. And maybe that compromised my immune system, and maybe that was the beginning. He was surprised, as he couldn't understand how a person like Artie could have been depressed. So there was a second visit, and he asked a leading question. He says, hey, Artie, when you went through your difficult time last fall, did you ever think of leaving Dave And she answered immediately. She said, oh heck yes. And for a moment he felt some vindication. But then the next thing she said changed the direction of the marriage forever. She says, I not only wanted to leave Dave, but I wanted to run away from everyone and everything. And wow, that was like a slap to his face. He immediately began to wonder if maybe he wasn't as unhappily married as he thought. Maybe he was just plain unhappy. So he began a process of assessing his life, and and the most important thing he did in that process was he released his wife from the responsibility and the burden of creating his happiness. He reclaimed that responsibility upon himself, and he began to reorder his life so that he could become happy and healthy. And as that process played itself out, he went home and the marriage began to heal. And I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. The next story is the story about the patient. I knew a young man that lived in our neighborhood. He always seemed happy and cheerful and never seemed to have any problems. Whenever he'd greet you, he'd say he was doing great. But over time, I noticed that great turned into good, and good turned to okay, and eventually okay into I'm doing the best I can. I eventually learned that he was battling a mental illness. Life events had mounted and put him into a spiral. And he was suffering from an anxiety disorder and clinical depression. I was stunned. I never thought someone like him would ever be affected by a mental illness. I certainly never expected to have anything like that affect me. I mean, I always thought those kinds of things affected the delicate or the weaker people. So I did the only thing I could do in order to try to help him. I did some research to learn about anxiety and depression. And I learned that to imagine an anxiety disorder, imagine yourself being home midnight by yourself and you become aware that someone's breaking into your home. Your heart would begin to race and your brain would release the adrenaline to get you ready for the fight or flight, which is exactly what's supposed to happen. But with an anxiety disorder, the brain doesn't function properly and it can release adrenaline for good things and bad things and at its worst, it's a constant stress. 24 hours a day. I learned that depression is like an injury, but it's not painful like a broken leg, but it's every bit as serious. It's normal to have short periods of depression, but if you have a chemical imbalance, the depression may linger and worsen. worsen. Some say depression makes you feel sad. Some say it makes you feel nothing. My friend would say that it gave him a sense of unfocused dread 24 hours a day. In his journal from back in that time, he wrote of a business trip to Topeka. I'm stuck here in Topeka, and I can't sleep. I try to get up in the middle of the night and run to try to get tired, but I end up running through the streets of Topeka, Kansas at 3 o'clock in the morning, crying my eyes out. Another note in his journal from about that time says, My life is a mess, and I'm wondering if life is worth continuing. Well, fortunately, he had some folks in his life that helped direct him to help. His wife recognized his symptoms and got him to a doctor. Both his wife and his mom gave him the poem Footprints during that period of time that shows footprints on a beach. And the poem says, Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest times of life, there was only one set of footprints. Why, when I needed you the most, would you leave me? And the Lord whispered and replied, My precious child, I love you and will never leave you. During your trials and testing, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Sometime after he reached out for help, and he had the benefit of medicine and some therapy, he had a glimmer of hope, and he decided to pursue a business opportunity. He sought the advice of his physician, who advised him against it. He said it would just add more stress. But by this time, my friend didn't think he had anything to lose. He decided he would rather fail in trying to do something instead of doing nothing and risk being broken and lonely at some place maybe like the Wheeler Rescue Mission. And so he immersed himself in the business opportunity, and that had an immediate benefit. He was so busy that he had less time to worry about himself, so there was no longer time to think about the cancer that he thought he might have. And so no need for another colonoscopy and no need to worry about the headaches that convinced him he had a brain tumor and therefore no need for another CAT scan. And his business was all about helping folks. And in that process, he felt a lot less alone as he learned that many people struggle with anxiety and depression. And at the end of the first year, although he was exhausted from working 60 and 70 hours a week, he would occasionally arrive home late at night and think back on the day and say to himself, you know, I think there were parts of the day where I actually felt normal. And by the end of the second year, it was apparent the business was going to be successful, and that helped his self-esteem. In year three, the anxiety and the depression was starting to lose its grip. And now I want to go back and tell you a little bit more about the story of the dreamer, the husband, and the patient. The dreamer, or the racer, went on to win six more national point races in 1984. And on New Year's Eve at the Breakfast of Champions at the Daytona International Speedway, he was crowned the World Karting Association National Champion. A championship he was able to repeat in 1985 and 1986. He went on to race in some other series, but when the children started to arrive, he called time out. He says he's never officially retired, so maybe one day, maybe there'll still be a comeback. The husband that was ready to give up on his marriage... And today would say that he's incredibly grateful that his wife didn't give up on him when he lost his way. He, he and his wife have now been married over 35 years and they've sent two incredible kids into the world that love the Lord. They're still in love and after all these years are best friends. I've heard that he will, okay, okay, well maybe very occasionally, on a rare occasion, sit and watch a Hallmark movie with her. And through him she's become a football fan and so they watch a lot of football together. The marriage has certainly had trials. But instead of tearing them apart, they grow closer through the trials as they are excited about their next stage of life, empty nesters and hopefully someday grandkids. The patient that battled the mental illness says that the anxiety never really went away and that causes him some frustration because certainly the Bible tells us not to worry. But he's learned to manage the anxiety better and he's learned to look at the anxiety more as a gift instead of a thorn. He says the depression has not returned in well over 33 years, but he knows those dark clouds are out there somewhere, so he does what he can to manage his life so that they don't return. The business that he uh, started has now been in operation for over 33 years, and it's been a great opportunity for him to serve his community and customers, and the hard work has provided blessings that have helped him to be charitable to his family, his church, and his community and also, he and his wife, and sometimes the kids, have been able to earn incentive travel to places all over the world that they would have never seen without this business opportunity. So there you have it, four stories that made it through the trials of adversity, that tested their faith and produces, produced the perseverance. But that's not the whole story, and you may have figured this out already, but the dreamer, the husband, and the patient are all the same person. And that person is the same person that drove by a village pantry in Noblesville in 1997. And God said, hey, Rick, if I can make a shepherd boy a king, I can help you be the elder chairman. So why did I tell you these four stories? Because I want you to find I hope that you will find encouragement in my stories. I want you to know that what it says in James chapter one is true. The trials will come and they certainly will test our faith, but they will develop our perseverance and that makes us more mature and complete. And before I get to my conclusion, I just want to take a few minutes and talk about something we never talk about in church or for that matter anywhere else, because it's uncomfortable. It's the growing epidemic and tragedy of suicide. I recently heard a father say this. Suicide does not kill you. No, it's the complete lack of hope. Hopelessness in a moment without being able to get to the next moment. He knows his college-age college son took his own life. And I know those words are true because I've had a couple moments of that in my life. And I think if we're honest, we've probably all maybe had a moment or two. And if we're listening, we've all made it, obviously, through those moments. But if you're listening to this and you have a predisposition to those moments then I encourage you to put guardrails up and make sure that things that can harm you are not readily available. Have a plan. Do something to get to the next moment. Google the suicide hotline or call someone. Get up and walk around the block. Turn on the TV. Do something to interrupt or disturb that moment so you can get to the next moment. That same father also says, if you think someone is contemplating harming themselves, you should not be afraid to ask. You can't make someone suicidal by asking them if they're struggling with suicidal thoughts. The worst you can do is have an awkward conversation and if it saves a life, awkward is a small price to pay. One of the blessings of having experiences is you can recognize other people when they struggle and so I have reached out to people that I thought were struggling and I don't really know if it may have created an awkward moment for them or for me. But it's a small price to pay if maybe I disturbed or interrupted their moment to help them get to their next moment. Today, I I know that I'm speaking to three groups. One that is probably currently experiencing a trial, many trials much worse than what I had. Another group that has been through a trial and is experiencing the benefits of that. And then there's the third group that's never really been tested, that's never really had a big trial. And if you're feeling left out this morning, I've got two words for you. Be patient. The trials will come. And for everybody, I'm here to cheer you on and cheer you through the trials of life that will test your faith and develop your perseverance. The trials will not last, and you will get through to the next moment or season. Everybody has a story, but as Ben told us in our study of Exodus, it's not really my story and it's not really your story. It's just a part of God's story. And God's story isn't over until it's over. Until you've been tested by trials that will make you complete. In the Song of, Silence, in the Song of Solomon it says, Yes, the winter is passed. The rains are over and done. The flowers appear on the earth. A season of singing has come. The trials will come, but they will be followed by a new season of singing. Don't ever give up. Because we all still have something deep, deep within us, something of value to give and borrowing, borrowing, some poetic words from Christian author Florence Littauer. It might be a song yet to be sung or a race, perhaps waiting to be run, perhaps a piece waiting to be played or a scene waiting to be staged, a tale waiting to be told or a book waiting to be sold, a rhyme waiting to be read Or perhaps a speech waiting to be said. A dream waiting to be dared. Or God's word waiting to be shared. Wherever you are in your journey through life. Whatever chapter you're in. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Until that day when you'll stand before our holy God. And you're going to be there a lot like me. All beat up from the world that we're leaving. From the fallen world. We're going to be scratched, cut, hurt, nicked by by this world. We're going to be a mess, but because of the saving blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of our Savior, that's not what God is going to see. He's going to see a polished version, because we've been kicked to the side of the road so many times by the trials that we have become complete, mature, and not lacking anything. And God will discover a polished gem as we hear these words. Well done, good and faithful sermon. Good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the trials that you send our way. Forgive us when we don't immediately rejoice in the adversity. Help to give us the resolve to never, never quit, especially when things become more difficult than we think they should be. Help us to be strong in our faith, grow in our perseverance, so that your lessons and trials can truly help us to grow, improve, mature and eventually be complete, not lacking in anything. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.